Uh, today we continue our series in James. Uh, this is uh, installment number four. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I got, uh, let's see, I got a few more weeks to go before I got a week off in the pulpit. And I, I'm already feeling beat up uh, by James. Uh, James is coming direct for you. He's coming uh, very clear. Uh, remember, he's Jesus' brother, and uh, he had been around Jesus his whole life, and he didn't really understand who Jesus was until after the resurrection. And so now he's trying uh, to uh, enlighten those of us who have been around Jesus for a long time uh, to, to, to wake us up to our folly, uh, to wake us up that just because uh, we are familiar uh, with Jesus doesn't mean that we're walking with Jesus. And so he's laying out in this epistle uh, what it looks like to live out your faith. He's not taking the gospel and breaking it down bit by bit, piece by piece, kind of like what Paul does. What he's doing is showing us the implications of believing in this gospel. And so let's pray. We'll begin. Father, we do thank you for this book. We thank you for the variety that you've given us in the scriptures, how we can uh, read a book like James and then read a book like Galatians. And, uh, and Lord, it really does give us a fullness. They don't contradict one another. Lord, instead, they are filling in gaps for one another. And Lord, then we can uh, turn to the Old Testament and read narrative or poetry or apocalyptic literature. We could read the Gospels. And uh, Lord, we see all these different variety of literature. And Lord, that's not just for those of us who are intellectually curious. Lord, that is to engage the different parts of our person. And so, Lord, I pray that today, uh, Lord, that you uh, would engage our behavior, our obedience, our uh, our relationships with this with this text. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, if you were with us last week, uh, we saw what life under the word looks like when you are living out the trials of your life. When life is really hard, you're apt to be very self-focused and uh, you forget that uh, there's a life going on then outside of just your circumstances. And so we saw that a life under the word affected uh, how we communicate, that we're to listen much, that we're to talk little, that we're to be slow to anger. We saw that it's going to affect our behavior, that we're to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And the last thing we saw is that it affects our relationships, specifically showing compassion to those in need, widows and orphans, verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1. And now today he takes this last point about the poor in their community, and then he applies it. So let's read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 together. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. So I'm going to break this text down. Uh, I think it does break down pretty naturally into three sections. The first is the ideal. What is this community supposed to look like? Well, it's supposed to be one of mercy and justice. And we see that in verses one to four. And then we see that James is not a mere pragmatist, that he's principled, that he's going to give us reasons why we should be that kind of community. He does that in verses 5 to the beginning of 13. And then at the very end of verse 13, he shows us the how. How do we be this kind of community? So let's start with the what, with the ideal. And as you expect from James, again, he's very clear and very direct. You see in verse 1? He says, show no partiality. And then in verses two to four, he gives us an illustration. He gives us, uh, he, he shows us what this partiality looks like in their community. And here's this illustration. He says that two people walk into church and they both stick out. They stick out for different reasons. One man is almost glowing. He lights up the room with his gold ring and his fine clothing. And the second one walks in and darkens the room with his shabby clothing. And as a response, the person who's a part of the community welcomes both. And when he welcomes one, he says, you can sit here in this fine place. But to the other, to the poor man, he says, you can sit here at my feet. He's showing partiality. And then in verse 4, James gives us a title. As those who show partiality, he says that we are these faulty judges, that we're judges because we're making up these false distinctions amongst ourselves. But see, here's what we have to know in every Christian community, that there are three things that unite us all, way above our class. And the first thing is that we're all sinners. But the second thing is that we're all made in God's image. And the third one is we're saved by grace. And yeah, there are differences. There's gender, there's race, there's class, like there is here in James. There's marital status, there's age, but... What unites us, being made in God's image, being a sinner, and being saved by grace, carries far more weight than what makes us different from one another. But what we do is that we tend to do what they do here in James, and we tilt the scales in one direction or the other based on a distinction, and we give greater value to our differences and then of what, than what we do that we have in common. And that's what sets up partiality. And James clear. He's clear when he talks about these people assigning value according to their wealth or lack thereof it. But we do in other ways, don't we? I think in our community, in our sphere of the church, that we set up these distinctions when it comes to education. We make way too much of education, and it shows what we expect or maybe even demand from our children. Maybe we expect or we demand them to go to private school, but Why? We expect or demand that they go to a liberal arts college or they go to out-of-state schools or they go to Christian schools or they go to schools that are academically rigorous. Why? Because we think to be a valuable member of society, to be a proper image bearer of God, you not only have to graduate from college, you have to go to the right kind of college and, and, and maybe even get a graduate degree on top of that. But you know that's not normal, don't you? 
You know what percentage of Kentuckians have a bachelor's degree? 25.7%. Here's a story of my family. When you consider the college experience of my parents, my aunts, and my uncles, there's 11 of them total, 10 of them graduated from college. That's 91%. You take myself, you take my brother, you take my 11 first cousins. I have a lot. We're not Catholic. Uh, but there are 13 of us. And 11 of us graduated from college. Five of those 11 have graduate degrees. But it makes me ask the question, what am I going to think of my own three kids if they don't go to college? Will I think less of them or will I prefer the one or the ones who do over the one or ones who don't? And that's just my kids. If I do it to them, how much worse am I going to do it to others based on their education? But maybe it's not education for you. Maybe that's not where you show partiality. Maybe it's as simple as you just implicitly favor those who are like you. Just think about our church. Who do you talk to on Sundays? I think it's very likely that you talk to those who are a lot like you. You talk to the same gender, the same people of the same age, people of the same interests, people of the same marital status. And if you do, you've played favorites. It's really humbling, <laughs> these first four verses. James comes out swinging here, but he doesn't leave you in a pit. He shows us why we should turn from our discriminatory ways and why we should do things differently. And he gives us three reasons in verses five to the first part of verse 13. In verse 5 and verse 6, he gives us a theological reason. In verse 6 and 7, he gives us a sociological reason. In verses 8 to 13, he gives us a moral reason. And he starts it all off there in verse 5, and he calls them the beloved brothers. Probably a good call here by James. I mean, he's just called them out for being pretty judgy, but he's not being flattery. He's not, being, he's not, he's not just showing flattery here. See, James is their pastor. He really loves these people, and he loves them enough to tell them the truth. He knows it's not good for them to continue in their ways of partiality. He's inviting them to repentance and to remember the ways of God. You see what he says? He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And clearly he's, he's anticipating an answer here. The answer is yes, but what does he mean? What, what does he mean by the poor inheriting the kingdom? Well, look at, look at the qualifier he gives in verse 5. He says that it's promised to those who love him, meaning that not all the poor people are those who inherit the kingdom, that you have to love him too, that loving him is the condition upon which inheriting the kingdom depends. But what about rich folk? To put another way, is James condemning one form of discrimination by replacing it with another? That is, is does, does James picture God here as one who's discriminating against the rich so that he can favor the poor? Well, I don't think that can be the case. I mean, if you just look through the book of Acts, you just look at the early church, you find several believers of means. You have Dorcas in Acts 9. You have the family of John Mark in Acts 12. You have Jason in Acts 17. 
and you have Manasseh in chapter 21, they're all wealthy enough to have large homes that can host large gatherings of the early church. And then you have some wealthy politicians in the book of Acts. You have Sergius Paulus in Acts 13. You have members of the Areopagus in Acts 17. In Acts 17, you have a, a group of prominent Greek women in Thessalonica. I mean, I could go on and on. This is just Acts, but I could go to a lot of other places to give you examples of people in the scriptures who are wealthy. But we, what we have to realize in this text is that in verse 5, it doesn't say only the poor. And only the poor in the world are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So what does James mean? If he means that there are rich folks who can get in, that he is saying that not all poor people get in, then what does he mean? Well, I think that he's hearkening back to the teaching of Jesus. I mean, that is what James is leaning on throughout the entire, his entire epistle is the teaching of Jesus. I think what he has in mind is that, is that saying that all of us are familiar with about that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I think what he has in mind is that he knows that wealth has a tendency of perverting the human soul. He knows that being materialistic creates conditions that make spiritual progress impossible. See, he's not saying that money is bad. It's just saying that our hearts believe that money can fix our problems. See, if you spend time around poor folks, you know that poor folks, since they don't have any money, they're more likely to look outside of their wallet for help. They're more likely to look to God. And that's why the number of poor people who respond to Jesus in faith are disproportionately marginalized, that they're the outsiders, that they're they're oppressed, that they're the disadvantaged. So here's what having the poor around does. And here's what James is trying to tell us. He's trying to tell us as Christians, particularly wealthy Christians, that it's to our advantage to have them around. To have them around wakes us up to how money deceives us into being self-reliant instead of God-reliant. He's trying to tell us that it wakes us up to how you need to remain poor in spirit. Of how we need to be looking outside of ourselves for spiritual resources. And this is the first and the strongest reason that James gives of why we should be impartial. But he gives us another one. It's sociological. Verses, the second half of verse 6, beginning at verse 7, he says that we should not show favoritism to the rich, according to James, because the rich can make our lives miserable. Now, we don't know exactly what situation James has in mind here, but there are similar dynamics going on today. I mean, just take companies that manufacture goods. I'm not saying all of them, but certainly some of them. There have been instances where those who work in offices make the big money, while those who actually produce the goods are making little. They're working in adverse conditions. Or you take some financial institutions and they charge exorbitant interest rates from clients who are mostly poor. You take some landlords that hike up rents on the poor while not keeping their homes in decent order. Be any number of things, but what James is asking us to do here is to have some skepticism about those with money. He's saying we should be careful not to assign virtue to the wealthy. Instead, we should be open at least to the possibility that their wealth was gained unjustly. If you do this, it'll help you be less 
partial. And the third reason is a moral reason. This is one he gives them a length to, verses 8 to 13. And the reason he does it is to deal with the excuses that we give when we're confronted with the darkness of our hearts about neglecting the poor. I mean, remember from previous weeks, even what I said earlier, that James is talking to church folk here. These are good people. These are people who know their Bibles, that they're familiar with Orthodox theology. And if you compared, the, compared these folks to the people around them, you would find them to be of strong moral fiber. But look at verse 11. I mean, these are the kind of people you want to be your neighbor. I mean, they don't commit adultery. They don't murder. That's pretty good, right? Wrong, according to James. He said that if you can't follow the prohibition of not showing partiality, that your obedience in these other areas of adultery and murder really don't matter. See, it's kind of like throwing a rock through a window. Whether the rock leaves a, hole, a small hole or breaks out the whole pane, you've got you, you to gotta replace the whole new window. And the law of God's like that. Or take my friend, my friend who I'm extremely jealous of. Uh, he is in unbelievable shape. He looks great at the swimming pool. He went in for his checkup and um, uh, he said his doctor said that his lungs were in perfect condition. His heart was in perfect condition, but he had an enlarged spleen. And if his spleen were to burst, it could kill him. And so the implication is that just because he has a strong heart and strong lungs, that it's nullified by the one thing that's not going so well. So brother and sister, you could be a seemingly loving person, that you could not murder anyone, that you could not commit adultery, that you can respect the authorities, that you cannot slander, and on and on and on and on and on, but not love the poor, and you'll miss the mark. You see what that gets you? Verse 12, verse 13 too. It's judgment. It's not the kind of judgment that's reserved for unbelievers. It's the kind of judgment for believers. You see it in 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10, it reads, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to believers. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, you and I are going to have to give an account. And we're going to have to give an account of how we interacted with the poor. But brother and sister, just because you know what God requires, don't show favoritism. Don't be discriminatory. Just because you know why you should do it doesn't mean that you can. At least not in and of yourself. And James knows that. And he gives you a few hints of how you're going to pull this off, of how, you're, how we're going to become this community of justice and mercy. And the first one is in verse 12. In verse 12, he uses a phrase that we heard last week from chapter 1, verse 25. He uses that phrase, law of liberty. Law and liberty. We don't put those words together very often. We think that they're contradictory. But what we saw last week is that when we're filled with the Spirit, then we're free to obey. That we're no longer shackled to only disobedience. That obedience now is possible. That's what we're made for. So that when we're given the commandment to be impartial, he's telling us that it's possible. And yeah, this obedience isn't meritorious. It is responsive. 
We obey not as to earn our salvation, but we obey because we've already received salvation. That we're wishing to respond with a grateful heart to our Savior who has set us free, that he's had mercy on us. That's why there's that last phrase. James ends with this burst of grace when he says, mercy triumphs over uh, over judgment. But did you see in verse 1? There's an odd thing in verse 1. I read this for the first time on Tuesday morning. I thought, why is that there? Then in verse 1, he, 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 calls, he just calls Jesus, he calls him the Lord of glory. It, it seems like this throwaway pious statement is just tacked on to the end of the sentence, but I think it's deliberate. See, Jesus as the Lord of glory is the same Jesus who was born to a poor woman. He's the same Jesus who was born in an obscure town. He's the same Jesus who was a refugee in Egypt. He was the same Jesus who learned a blue-collar trade. This is the same Jesus who was homeless. This is the Jesus from Isaiah 53 that is said to have no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, that he was as one who men hide their faces, and we esteemed him not. So Jesus, in many ways, was like the man with shabby clothes who walked in. And he is the one who's the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory, the the one who, 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 who didn't afford himself the good comforts of this life, who left the comforts of heaven. He lived a lifestyle of poverty that he extended mercy to the poor. He didn't hobnob with the rich and powerful. And he died the death of a criminal on a Roman instrument of torture. And brothers and sisters, when he died this death of a, of, a Roman, of, of, a, of a Roman criminal, that was the pinnacle of his glory. That's where he got so far down. He was so downwardly mobile, and that's where he found you in the pit. And that's where he's rescued you from. And that's how he has set us free. And now we're ambitious to follow our Savior and be downwardly mobile with him. That we're not trying to accumulate contacts among those in places of influence, but we spend our days with the poor. So what might that look like for you? Well, think back to verses two and three. The picture, that illustration that he uses of two people walk into church and you've got a, uh, you've got a choice. Where are you gonna, how are you going to treat the rich person? How are you going to treat the poor person? Well, I, I think that's what we're faced with each and every day. I mean, think about your job. Will you choose to work among the poor, maybe as a medical professional, maybe as a teacher, maybe as a lawyer, or will you choose to only work among the middle class and the wealthy? Will you choose to live among the poor? Or will you insulate yourself from their problems in a nice neighborhood? so-called nice. Will you choose to educate your children among the poor or will you expose them to those who are on a fast track for college? Will you choose to go to church where you're exposed to the poor or will you go to church where you can avoid issues of poverty and race? That's going to look different for all of us. 
But one thing's sure, it's easy to always choose to be around those who are rich and influential instead of the poor. And brother and sister, that's to our disadvantage. And see, as you engage in this work, what you'll begin to see is that you're the one with the filthy rags. That you're the one that you look like that shabby man to God. And brother and sister, if you've not got there, you're still middle class in spirit. You're not poor in spirit. But when you know that that's true, when you know that's what you're like before God, you'll be able to relate to the poor. You won't patronize them. You won't try to fix them. You'll not try to gain a reputation as a compassionate person, but you'll relate to them as a fellow sinner in need of God's grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh, we are so thankful that's true. Lord, that you... Oh, you want to empower us to be a people who love the poor. And Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves as the poor. And Lord, I pray you would give us patience along this journey, Lord, that we change very slowly. And Lord, I pray that we would help each other move forward. Lord, that we would not make this an individual endeavor. But Lord, we would bring these kinds of issues before one another and ask for help. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen.